This is a continuation of Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism by Vladimir Lenin. We are reading the second half of Chapter 1, Concentration of Production and Monopolies. Cartels come to an agreement on the terms of sale, dates of payment, etc. They divide the markets among themselves. They fix the quantity of goods to be produced. They fix prices. They divide the profits among the various enterprises, etc. The number of cartels in Germany was estimated at about 250 in 1896 and at 385 in 1905, with about 12,000 firms participating. But it is generally recognized that these figures are underestimations. From the statistics of German industry for 1907 we quoted above, it is evident that even these 12,000 very big enterprises probably consume more than half the steam and electric power used in the country. In the United States of America, the number of trusts in 1900 was estimated at 185, and in 1907, 250. American statistics divide all industrial enterprises into those belonging to individuals to private firms or to corporations. The latter in 1904 comprised 23.6% and in 1909, 25.9%, i.e. more than one-fourth of the total industrial enterprises in the country. These employed in 1904, 70.6% and in 1909, 75.6%, i.e. more than three-fourths of the total wage earners. Their output at these two dates was valued at $10,900,000,000 and $16,300,000,000, i.e. 73.7% and 97.0% of the total, respectively. At times, cartels and trusts concentrate in their hands seven or eight-tenths of the total output of a given branch of industry. The Rhine-Westphalian Coal Syndicate, at its foundation in 1893, concentrated 86.7% of the total coal output of the area, and in 1910 it already concentrated 95.4%. The monopoly so created assures enormous profits and leads to the formation of technical production units of formidable magnitude. The famous Standard Oil Company in the United States was founded in 1900. Quote, it has an authorized capital of $150 million. It issued $100 million common and $106 million preferred stock. From 1900 to 1907, the following dividends were paid on the latter. 48, 48, 45, 44, 36, 40, 40, and 40% in their respective years, i.e. in all, $367 million. From 1882 to 1907, out of total net profits amounting to $889 million, $606 million were distributed in dividends and the rest went to reserve capital. In 1907, the various works of the United States Steel Corporation employed no less than 210,180 people. The largest enterprise in the German mining industry, Gelsenkirchen Bergwerksgesellschaft, in 1908, had a staff of 46,048 workers and office employees." Unquote. 
In 1902, the United States Steel Corporation already produced 9 million tons of steel. Its output consisted in 1901, 66.3%, and in 1908, 56.1% of the total output of steel in the United States. The output of ore was 43.9% and 46.3% respectively. The report of the American Government Commission on Trusts states, their superiority over competitors is due to the magnitude of their enterprises and their excellent technical equipment. Since its inception, the Tobacco Trust has devoted all its efforts to the universal substitution of mechanical for manual labor. With this end in view, it has brought up all patents that have anything to do with the manufacture of tobacco and has spent enormous sums for this purpose. Many of these patents at first proved to be of no use and had to be modified by the engineers employed by the trust. At the end of 1906, two subsidiary companies were formed solely to acquire patents. With the same object in view, the trust has built its own foundries, machine shops, and repair shops. One of these establishments, that in Brooklyn, employs on the average 300 workers, here experiments are carried out on inventions concerning the manufacture of cigarettes, cheroots, snuff, tinfoil for packing, boxes, etc. Here also inventions are perfected. Other trusts also employ what are called development engineers, whose business it is to devise new methods of production and to test technical improvements. The United States Steel Corporation grants big bonuses to its workers and engineers for all inventions that raise technical efficiency or reduce cost of production. In German large-scale industry, e.g. in the chemical industry, which has developed so enormously during these last few decades, the promotion of technical improvement is organized in the same way. By 1908, the process of concentration of production had already given rise to two main groups which, in their way, were also in the nature of monopolies. At first, these groups constituted dual alliances of two pairs of big factories, each having a capital of from 20 to 21 million marks. On the one hand, the former Meister factory in Hochst and the Casella factory in Frankfurt am Main, and on the other hand, the aniline and soda factory at Ludwigshafen and the former Bayer factory at Elberfeld. Then, in 1905, one of these groups, and in 1908, the other group, each concluded an agreement with yet another big factory. The result was the formation of two triple alliances, each with a capital of from 40 to 50 million marks. And these alliances have already begun to approach each other to reach an understanding about prices, etc. Competition becomes transformed into monopoly. The result is immense progress in the socialization of production. In particular, the process of technical invention and improvement becomes socialized. This is something quite different from the old free competition between manufacturers, scattered and out of touch with one another, and producing for an unknown market. Concentration has reached the point at which it is possible to make an approximate estimate of all sources of raw materials, for example, the iron ore deposits of a country, and even, as we shall see, of several countries, or of the whole world. Not only are such estimates made, but these sources are captured by gigantic monopolist associations. An approximate estimate of the capacity of markets is also made, 
and the associations divide them up amongst themselves by agreement. Skilled labor is monopolized, the best engineers are engaged, the means of transport are captured, railways in America, shipping companies in Europe and America. Capitalism in its imperialist stage leads directly to the most comprehensive socialization of production. It, so to speak, drags the capitalists against their will and consciousness into some sort of a new social order, a transitional one from complete free competition to complete socialization. Production becomes social, but appropriation remains private. The social means of production remain the private property of a few. The general framework of formally recognized free competition remains, and the yoke of a few monopolists on the rest of the population becomes a hundred times heavier, more burdensome, and intolerable. The German economist Kessner has written a book especially devoted to the struggle between the cartels and outsiders, i.e. the capitalists outside the cartels. He entitled his work Compulsory Organization, although in order to present capitalism in its true light, he should, of course, have written about compulsory submission to monopolist associations. It is instructive to glance at least the list of the methods the monopolist associations resort to in the present day, the latest, the civilized struggle for organization. 1. Stopping supplies of raw materials. Quote, one of the most important methods of compelling adherence to the cartel, unquote. 2. Stopping the supply of labor by means of alliances, i.e. of agreements between the capitalists and the trade unions by which the latter permit their members to work only in cartelized enterprises. 3. Stopping deliveries. 4. Closing trade outlets. 5. Agreements with the buyers, by which the latter undertake to trade only with the cartels. 6. Systematic price cutting to ruin outside firms, i.e. those which refuse to submit to the monopolists. Millions are spent in order to sell goods for a certain time below their cost price. There were instances when the price of petrol was thus reduced from 40 to 22 marks, i.e. almost by half. 7. Stopping credits. And 8. Boycott. Here, we no longer have competition between small and large, between technically developed and backward enterprises. We see here the monopolists throttling those who do not submit to them, to their yoke, to their dictation. This is how this process is reflected in the mind of a bourgeois economist. Even in the purely economic sphere, writes Kessner, a certain change is taking place from commercial activity, in the old sense of the word, towards organizational speculative activity. The greatest success no longer goes to the merchant, whose technical and commercial experience enables him best of all to estimate the needs of the buyer, and who is able to discover and, so to speak, awaken a latent demand. It goes to the speculative genius who knows how to estimate, or even only to sense in advance, the organizational development and the possibilities of certain connections between individual enterprises and the banks. Translated into ordinary human language, this means that the development of capitalism has arrived at a stage when, although commodity production still reigns and continues to be regarded as the basis of economic life, it has in reality been undermined and the bulk of the profits go to the geniuses of financial manipulation. At the basis of these manipulations and swindles lies socialized production, but the immense progress of mankind which achieved this socialization goes to benefit the speculators. 
We shall see later how, on these grounds, reactionary, petty bourgeois critics of capitalist imperialism dream of going back to free, peaceful, and honest competition. The prolonged raising of prices which results from the formation of cartels, says Kessner, has hitherto been observed only in respect of the most important means of production, particularly coal, iron, and potassium, but never in respect of manufactured goods. Similarly, the increase in profits resulting from this raising of prices has been limited only to the industries which produce means of production. To this observation, we must add that the industries which process raw materials and not semi-manufactures not only secure advantages from the cartel formation in the shape of high profits to the detriment of the finished goods industry, but have also secured a dominating position over the latter, which did not exist under free competition. The words which I have italicized dominating position, reveal the essence of the case which the bourgeois economists admit so reluctantly and so rarely, and which the present-day defenders of opportunism, led by Kautsky, so zealously try to evade and brush aside. Domination, and the violence that is associated with it, such are the relationships that are typical of the, quote, latest phase of capitalist development, unquote. This is what inevitably had to result, and has resulted, from the formation of all-powerful economic monopolies. I shall give one more example of the methods employed by the cartels, where it is possible to capture all, or the chief sources, of raw materials. The rise of cartels and formation of monopolies is particularly easy. It would be wrong, however, to assume that monopolies do not arise in other industries, in which it is impossible to corner the sources of raw materials. The cement industry, for instance, can find its raw materials everywhere, yet in Germany this industry is too strongly cartelized. The cement manufacturers have formed regional syndicates, South German, Rhine-Westphalian, etc. The prices fixed are monopoly prices, 230 to 280 marks a carload, where the cost price is 180 marks. The enterprises pay a dividend of 12 to 16 percent, and it must not be forgotten that the geniuses of modern speculation know how to pocket big profits besides what they draw in dividends. In order to prevent competition in such a profitable industry, the monopolists even resort to various stratagems. They spread false rumors about the bad situation in their industry. Anonymous warnings are published in the newspapers, like the following, quote, Capitalists, don't invest your capital in the cement industry, unquote. Lastly, they buy up outsiders, those outside the syndicates, and pay them compensation of 60,000, 80,000, and even 150,000 marks. Monopoly hews a path for itself everywhere without scruple as to the means, from paying a modest sum to buy off competitors, to the American device of employing dynamite against them. The statement that cartels can abolish crises is a fable spread by bourgeois economists who, at all costs, desire to place capitalism in a favorable light. On the contrary, the monopoly created in certain branches of industry increases and intensifies the anarchy inherent in capitalist production as a whole. The disparity between the development of agriculture and that of industry, which is characteristic of capitalism in general, is increased. The privileged position of the most highly cartelized so-called heavy industry, especially coal and iron, causes, quote, a still greater lack of coordination, unquote, in other branches of industry. As Jadels, the author of one of the best works on 
the relationship of the German big banks to industry admits. The more developed an economic system is, writes Leifman, an unblushing apologist of capitalism, the more it resorts to risky enterprises or enterprises in other countries, to those which need a great deal of time to develop, or finally, to those which are only of local importance. The increased risk is connected in the long run with a prodigious increase of capital, which, as it were, overflows the brim, flows abroad, etc. At the same time, the extremely rapid rate of technical progress gives rise to increasing elements of disparity between the various spheres of national economy to anarchy and crises. Leifman is obliged to admit that, in all probability, mankind will see further important technical revolutions in the near future, which will also affect the organization of the economic system, electricity, and aviation. As a general rule, in such periods of radical economic change, speculation develops on a large scale. Crises of every kind, economic crises, most frequently, but not only these, in their turn increase very considerably the tendency towards concentration and towards monopoly. In this connection, the following reflections of Jadel's on the significance of the crisis of 1900, which, as we have already seen, marked the turning point in the history of modern monopoly, are exceedingly instructive. Side by side with the gigantic plants and the basic industries, the crisis of 1900 still found many plants organized on lines that, today, would be considered obsolete. The pure, non-combined plants, which were brought into being at the height of the industrial boom. The fallen prices and the falling off in demand that put these pure enterprises in a precarious position, which did not affect the gigantic combined enterprises at all, or only affected them for a very short time. As a consequence of this, the crisis of 1900 resulted in a far greater concentration of industry than the crisis of 1873. The latter crisis also produced a sort of selection of the best equipped enterprises, but owing to the level of the technical development at that time, this selection could not place the firms which successfully emerged from the crisis in a position of monopoly. Such a durable monopoly exists to a high degree in the gigantic enterprises in the modern iron and steel and electrical industries owing to their very complicated technique, far-reaching organization, and magnitude of capital, and to a lesser degree in the engineering industry, certain branches of the metallurgical industry, transport, etc. Monopoly. This is the last word in the latest phase of capitalist development. But we shall only have a very insufficient, incomplete, and poor notion of the real power and the significance of modern monopolies if we do not take into consideration the part played by the banks. That ends chapter one, and our next installment will cover chapter two, called Banks and Their New Role. The prose is interspersed with tables of data, which is really not suitable for an audio-only format. So I'm going to have to get a little creative about how I adapt those tables for the menagerie. Patreon plug, patreon.com slash epicincredulity. And for now, enjoy your epoch.